All right. Well, hey, let's. Uh, we're going to dive in just to maximize time, to honor your time, and uh, have a good time tonight. Uh, welcome, everybody. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Mick, and uh, I assume you know that. If you're here, uh, you likely heard uh, the message yesterday or or are a friend of somebody who did, or you're already in this LifeU course. And uh, what I'd like to do to start is just to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to guide our time. And there's a million directions we could go. We just want to discern uh, what does God want to highlight and ask that the Holy Spirit would do the deep work in us to form us into his image and to translate uh, truth in, in a very complex situation and set of circumstances. Uh, so if you join with me uh, as we pray together. Father, thank you for uh, you. You are the, the I am. You are the fixed point. And we uh, humbly come before you tonight. We do not have all the answers. We do not pretend to know how to navigate uh, all these situations and circumstances within our own, within, within ourselves, within relationships, within culture. Um, so we ask, Holy Spirit, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that the Spirit indwells us and that you can guide us into all truth. And so we ask that you would do that tonight uh, graciously in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, just one or two disclaimers before we dive in. Um, if you're joining tonight, just kind of jumping in as a guest, uh, we, this is week three of content that we've been going through. So um, there just wasn't a neat linear way to do this. We wanted to open up tonight for uh, further discussion, but I apologize if I make references to things that uh, we've covered in the first couple weeks of this class, and it's uh, it doesn't make 100% sense. Um, there's a reason for that because we're building on material we've already covered, but I will try to sync it all up and, uh, and make relevant comments uh, for everybody in the room. But if I don't, that's, uh, that's why. And, and let me just kind of humbly offer these thoughts tonight. Um, I, this is a, a working theory. This is a work in progress. And so everything we talk about tonight, uh, I'm, I'm offering it uh, to evaluate, to take back to the scriptures, to dialogue about in life groups and discipleship. Uh, there are a million nuances to this topic. Um, after Maddie and I shared yesterday, I had an hour-long exchange of voice memos with a doctor friend of mine that helped me nuance this, some of the stuff we shared yesterday at an even deeper level. Uh, and there are more and more rounds uh, around the mountain that we could take to refine this. And so I'm presenting my thoughts as they exist presently. They will probably continue to change. Uh, so just know that uh, this is a, a working theory that is uh, continuing to be developed. Uh, we're actually not going to do this tonight. So forget that I put that up there. Um, okay, so the goals of tonight and this whole course that we've been doing is not just to help kind of figure out what's going on out there, what's going on in culture, what's going on in my crazy aunt, what's going on in my school. The, the finger starts by pointing inward. What's going on in me, and how am I being formed into the image of Jesus? And so everything that we share tonight, um, our own personal sexual formation is a key part of our spiritual formation. So um, this whole 
course and this whole discipleship process is about first being formed into the image of Jesus and then being empowered to speak uh, truth uh, lovingly to culture and the, the difficulty of threading that needle. How are we both embodying the compassion, the gentleness, uh, the generosity of spirit of God while uh, remaining truthful and being the pillar and support of truth that we see in the New Testament. So those are kind of where we're aiming with this with this content. Here's just a flyover of uh, a little bit of where we've been in the first couple weeks. Some of this will will sound familiar if you were there yesterday morning. Um, we want to have kind of a biblical vision of sexuality within which we start to navigate these complexities. And so these are just kind of some three fundamental, this is not exhaustive, but some three fundamental starting points that I believe we can extrapolate from Genesis 1 and 2. And that is that male and female have co-equal value. Um, that one is a little bit more, uh, I think most heads would nod at that, but that has not always been the case. And it's still not always the case. Uh, but throughout history, uh, there has been in most cultures and most places a, uh, a very clear stream of thought that men are superior, women are by very nature um, uh, uh, diminished in their value compared to men. And so we just want to state very clearly, we believe male and female have co-equal value. Uh, we believe that sexual distinction displays God's nature. So the sexual distinction between male and female is critical for displaying the nature of God. And each of these are deep wells that we could plumb for the, the whole time together. But we also believe the sexed body is a good thing. So when we talk about male and female uh, having co-equal va value, we're talking about both being created in the image of God, both are blessed by God, both are given dominion or agency by God, both are pronounced very good. When we talk about um, uh, sexual distinction displaying God's nature, uh, again, I'm just going to, I'm not going to go in depth here because we talked about this yesterday some, but uh, I believe that, that male and female images something of God's transcendence and his imminence, uh, that um, his unity in, and I would actually change the word to distinction instead of diversity, but his unity within himself, father, son, in spirit, or that balance of sameness and difference among the Trinity is what leads to fruitfulness. And this is imaged in male and female, this balance of sameness in, uh, in our differences or unity among our distinctions is key to imaging God in the world. And we, it, uh, male, female also displays God's desired relationship with humanity that God's power lies in his ability to initiate life. Humanity's power lies in its ability to receive and incubate life. And again, I wish I could comment on each of these, but we're just going to keep moving and get into kind of the meat of where we're going. Uh, we also believe that the sexed body, our sexuality, is a good thing. The creation, the invention of God, the idea of God to create two sexes, uh, distinct in our biology, uh, distinct in our, the, how that works out in the family and in the church. This is a good thing. We believe that the body reveals truth. So uh, when Adam, uh, ish is the Hebrew word for once Adam, mankind, in Genesis 1.23, once uh, God removes the rib from Adam, it says, then the man, ish, is this new word that's introduced, uh, 
beholds this new creature and calls her Isha because she was taken from Ish. And he recognizes her um, sexuality before she's ever opened her mouth. So it has nothing to do with her psychology before she has ever played, played a role in culture in the family. So the body revealed the truth of her nature to Adam in Genesis 1.23. The body necessitates communion. Uh, so God made it to where literally, just functionally, physically, the bodies fit together like lock and key. And you have to have the two becoming one in order to propagate the human race, to uh, bear fruit, to increase and multiply. And the body invites reciprocity. So um, women were never meant to be owned by men. Men were never meant to be owned by women. God gave agency to both male and female to then offer back selflessly as opposed to being oppressed. So the body requires reciprocity in order for God's purpose and plan to be fulfilled. All right, so uh, that's just a flyover of a little bit of where we've been first couple weeks and, uh, and yesterday, and I hope um, that at least whets your appetite to dig a little deeper into the text and uh, what the scriptures say about male and female. It's a beautiful, deep uh, meditation. All right, but you guys ready to dive in? Okay. And feel free, uh, I know it's a bigger group, but feel free, This the reason we create these spaces is not just for a transfer of information, but as much as we need to dialogue, if there's something I say and you're like, hey, just pause for a second, could you uh, illuminate that a little bit, uh, or if you have a question, we'll do some Q&A at the end, and we have the Joneses here as well, who will help out with the Q&A, our youth pastors, since they are on the front lines of a lot of these conversations, uh, but feel free to interrupt as we go. All right, so if, if we get this idea of male-female from Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked a little bit about Genesis 3 yesterday and where everything went awry, what about the rest of Scripture, just real quick, because uh, the rest of Scripture, real quick, um, uh, because there's some, some additional key insights. Um, trying to think of where to go. Uh, we have five hours of material for about an hour here. So um, let me start with Jesus. Good place to start. Um, Jesus continually takes his listeners, takes his followers, takes the Pharisees, his audience, back to Genesis 1 and 2. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. When Jesus answers questions, when he deals with some of these complex issues in his time, uh, one example of this would be in Matthew 19, 3 through 8. Uh, the Pharisees come up to him and test him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, and this was a, a debate that was going on in their culture at this time, this any cause divorce. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he quotes Genesis 2, and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from the beginning, it was not so. And in theological language, we talk about hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. And Jesus gives us a powerful hermeneutic here 
where he talks about how um, in Israel's history, in the history of God discipling this nation, it seems that God made allowances because of where they were in their development after leaving pagan Egypt and wandering in the desert. And God made allowances because of their hardness of heart. But Jesus says, yeah, sure, God made an allowance there, but from the beginning, here was God's intent. From the beginning, here was God's intent. And in this context, he's talking about marriage and divorce, but we can extrapolate this to talk about um, our sexuality as well, where there might be con- concessions made throughout time because of just the complexity uh, around us. But I believe if Jesus was here today and we were to ask him about somebody transitioning or somebody, I would imagine him echoing back in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. That is, uh, we can work that out. But from the beginning, God made them male and female, pointing back to original intent. I say that to say there are a lot of complex scriptures. Uh, it's easy to kind of, it's not easy, but it's, it, it, it's right to boil down some fundamental truths from Genesis 1 and 2. But if we get into Timothy and Titus, or we get into the nation of Israel and the treatment of women, even embedded in the law, it can become very complex very quickly. Uh, even some of Paul's Uh, commands to the churches about women, and some of these conversations I've been having over the past several years revolve around this. But we have to understand God was discipling a nation in a specific context, in a specific time in history, and then God was discipling the church within a specific context in a specific time in history. And so Genesis 1 and 2, creational intent, and then Jesus in the Gospels are our lens through which we look at the rest of Scripture and to begin to interpret it. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's my cop-out of not having to get into every uh, uh, controversial passage, which would take us months, and certain people go to four-year colleges and get degrees in these sorts of things because the rabbit holes go very, very deep, very quickly. All right, so I would boil it down to say, and I said this a little differently in the second service yesterday than the first, but... The Bible doesn't really give many sex-specific commands. It does give sex-specific commands. A lot of those are very contextual. Uh, most of the sex-specific commands um, uh, refer to um, the family and the church. Uh, there are very, very few, and I, I can only think of one off the top of my head, that seems like a universal sex-specific command. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 16 where he says, act like men, uh, but that uh, uh, there's some kind of interpretive um, gymnastics we'd have to do there to parse that out. The vast, vast majority of commands in the scripture apply to male and female together to be godly, to be Christ-like. Um, there, are, there is not a common refrain in scripture that directs at women or directs at men Women be like women, men be like men, except for, again, some key specific roles within the family and within, within the church. But if you are not within the family or you're not a part of the church, uh, we can't then draw, draw those out to apply universally to all biological men and biological women. Here's one example in Titus uh, chapter 2. I'm sorry, I didn't give you Matthew 19 there. But Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. 
Here's one of these examples of these kind of controversial passages where Paul is speaking specifically to women here. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now you can see here that of the Ten Commands, eight are given elsewhere, directed at both men and women, or directed specifically at men, and only two are uh, specifically directed at women and are balanced by a few other passages and are specific to the household. Again, not necessarily universal commands. Um, So uh, I say that to say again that the Um, the locus of what it means to be male and female, at least my working theory, my conviction right now, is in our biology, is in our um, our physical sexual distinctions. And we tie that back to creational intent in Genesis 1 and 2. And I believe it bears out in the ministry of Jesus. And I believe that we could take the, the six or seven controversial passages that are aimed directly at women in particular uh, and a couple at men and make a case that those are not uh, appealing to some immaterial, fundamental nature of what it means to be male and female, uh, but the outworking of male and female, specifically in the institutions of the church and in the family. Now, that being said, what I do see consistently is this command for male and female to remain distinct within a cultural context. So here's one example from Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whatever, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, there are a lot of others we could get into in 1 Corinthians 11. And again, some of those are, are, um, have some cultural uh, implications. But there does seem to be a theme, a refrain, where uh, we are commanded to maintain distinction. What is not um, clear is what that distinction has to look like from culture to culture and age to age. It seems to be culturally bound, uh, uh, descriptive, but not prescriptive. God does not prescribe for all cultures and all time and all places for women to have long hair. That's a controversial statement. Some of you immediately would go to 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, actually um, there's some fascinating commentary on that that's coming out, some scholarship about uh, Paul's comments there about women having long hair that, uh, if we have time, remind me at the end. Uh, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, however, there are not universal commands for how male and female distinctions should be played out in all cultures at all times, while... The Bible does command for us to maintain sexual distinction because of what sexuality images of God and, uh, and uh, that in terms of what we talked about earlier uh, in fulfilling our creational purpose and showing the world what he is like. All right, here's uh, an example of maybe how cultural trends change throughout time. Uh, this is uh, King Louis, the son king of France. He was considered the height of masculine power uh, during his reign. He was the kind of the, the NFL linebacker of today. 
All right. He was a military commander. Uh, he was also very into the arts. That picture that he commissioned, he was also very vain. He commissioned like over 1,400 paintings of himself. Um, but that picture on the right is probably one of the more famous ones. You'll notice he's wearing high heels, tights, uh, essentially it amounts to a dress, uh, a long wig, makeup, and he's standing in what would today be considered a very feminine pose. All right. But at that time, he was distinctly male within the context of his culture. There would have been no questions in uh, this age in France what he was trying to present himself as uh, in, this, in this context. Now, today, cultural um, norms and aesthetics have shifted to where somebody walking down the street like that today, you'd immediately think that they're dressing in drag and trying to make a statement. But that was not the case for the Sun King of France. He was a military commander, uh, but he was also a connoisseur of the arts. And he commissioned both of these paintings of him uh, to, display, to display that. I, I just um, put these up there. I, I was thinking about maybe doing these yesterday, and I was like, uh, might be a, a loop that we can't close on a Sunday morning. Um, but again, the, the Bible seems to be very expansive in what it can mean to express masculinity and femininity. We'll get back into some of those slides we showed yesterday. Um, however, the clear command to maintain distinction, to not water down uh, that distinction, is consistent through the scriptures. Um, you see the, the summary there. I don't need to repeat that uh, word perfectly. Okay, so again, here's some slides from uh, yesterday. Um, so we'll just kind of breeze over these, but these are some stereotypes in our culture that uh, predominate, and um, some are more comical than others. I showed you some of the gender quizzes that I have taken. If you weren't there, apparently I'm just about fully androgynous. Uh, but in the scriptures, we see again this broad expression of, of how male and female can be, ex, uh, can, can be expressed in, uh, in society, uh, that women are caretakers and nurturers, but they fight battles and win wars and so on. Men are certainly warriors and leaders, uh, but and I, I took off the kiss other men yesterday as well, uh, so as to, again, not open a, a loop. We couldn't close, but it's there in Scripture. And again, it's a cultural appropriation, uh, there are commands in Scripture to greet each other with a holy kiss, topic for another time. All right. We, and, and I'm moving a little bit more quickly over this so we can get to some of the stuff we didn't do yesterday. But here are some, um, um, yeah, so really there at the bottom is, is what we talked about yesterday being those five primary sexual characteristics that within the medical community, um, as I understand it, uh, they use this to evaluate if someone is born with a genetic abnormality. Um, and, and I know, let me just pause here and give just kind of a pastoral note. Um, I recognize that there might be some in the room right now for whom this is a very delicate, sensitive topic. Uh, there might be just a personal journey in um, uh, relative to gender. And so please don't uh, misinterpret my kind of moving quickly through this content as being cold or callous towards that journey. Uh, I'm trying to get into some, some new content. And so um, 
if 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 I was talking almost exclusively to a crowd of people who were confused in their gender, uh, dealing with sexual trauma, the tone and the nature of this presentation would be completely different. My assumption is that most people are here um, to learn and to, to be equipped to turn around and to help other people uh, in your lives. So with that disclaimer, um, there are people born with genetic abnormalities. Uh, and again, I, I didn't say this explicitly yesterday, but historically that might be a, a baby boy born with a, a very small penis that aesthetically the medical community might have made just a kind of a flash decision of, of um, kind of guiding that person into one sexual expression or the other surgically. Uh, now they're far more... Um, careful with those distinctions, and they apply a much deeper and more rigorous test along these lines. And using this, uh, there, according to the research that I've read, there has never been a person born with full sexual ambiguity, no matter how severe the genetic abnormality. And we'll come back to that when we talk about intersex conditions. All right, as I'm getting caught up in my notes here, any questions so far? or comments. This has mainly been review, and now we're going to get into some um, some new content. Okay, so uh, again, to wrap up some of the familiar slides, our sexuality is not determined by these other things, uh, these secondary sex characteristics, which arise biologically from the primary sexual characteristics. And, and this slide really is where we kind of get into trouble in, uh, in our culture because most of our stereotypes follow these, um, these characteristics. So if you think of what a um, stereo stereotypical male is in culture, big-chested, deep-voiced, uh, is into very aggressive activities, type A, you know, might wear in, in the South, might wear a specific type of clothing, um, and uh, might be interested in very specific types of things. But biblically, this does not determine our fundamental sexuality in terms of God's creational uh, intent. Okay? Um, just a couple of reminders here. It gets cut off there a little bit on the sides. But those are our definitions from yesterday. Uh, the male and female definition. And then um, kind of masculinity and femininity in terms of what male and female um, images of God. And the key, uh, the kind of the operative words in there are body and potential and life. So a man is one whose body is organized to have the potential to initiate life outside the self. The female, one whose body is organized in such a way as to gestate life within the self. And this matters because um, stereotypes that are presented as biblical sexual differences can be harmful for someone who doesn't fit the stereotype. And if you've grown up in the church, um, this can often creep into the church, especially here in the South, that, uh, you know, these men's conferences, my, my wife, so um, there's so many things I wanted to say yesterday that I didn't, I get to say it here. So uh, my wife and I, it, I, when we go out to eat, I like, I typically will get salads, fish, fruit, these sorts of things. My wife grew up in the country. She gets everything fried, red meat, you know, so we'll go to a restaurant and I'll order, you know, fish and salad. She orders double bacon cheeseburger with fries. And the server almost always, 
if it wasn't assigned to a seat, just instinctively puts the burger in front of me and the salad and fish in front of her. We laugh, we swap plates, and we go on with our date. Um, but we laugh about it. But again, if somebody is, you know, a boy who is artistic and emotional, grows up in a, a home of a believer, let's just start there, in a, in a Christian home, um, of a father meaning well, you know, in the midst of all this sexual confusion and sees, oh, my son is gravitating more towards theater and Mozart and I got to, he's, you know, no son of mine is going to be gay and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and they appropriate these cultural stereotypes in a deeply harmful way. And in pastoral ministry, I have had, you know, we've, my wife and I have ministered now to hundreds of 18 to 30-year-olds, and I can't tell you uh, in our office, and Shannon's shaking her head, nodding her head, um, how many stories of, uh, you know, there's a square peg in a round hole in my home, and, and all this sexual confusion that arose, or, you know, for a woman who, like Maddie yesterday, alluding to gravitating towards sports and things that would be considered predominantly uh, male activities, and the, the well-meaning Christians often let alone the rest of the world, but well-meaning Christians often trying to steer out of fear uh, a loved one towards a specific stereotype that they baptize in biblical language, but often that is very loosely and, uh, and not very carefully connected to actual biblical teaching, and it can cause deep harm. Uh, in somebody's development. Now, especially, there is a powerful, powerful counter-narrative that has been the case on the coasts for some years now, and it's only just becoming the reality. Uh, of course, for some people in the room, it's been more of a reality than others because of your profession, And uh, but for just kind of popular culture now within the schools and so on, it is very common for the narrative to be, oh, you feel that way, you don't fit in with your dad, your church, whatever else, because you're trans. And that's, uh, so I grew, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went to Jinx High School, one of the more conservative places on the planet. It's about a mile down from Oral Roberts University, uh, if you know Oral Roberts. And, you know, when I went to public school, I was exposed to, you know, drugs and alcohol and profanity and all the sexual stuff. But there was not this, this sexual confusion around gender. Fast forward, whatever it's been now, 22 years, we have a church plant in Tulsa now, and I'm on the board, and uh, the pastors this past year had their kids at Jinx, and, and at our board meeting back in May, I was talking to the wife, Robin, and I was like, hey, how's, how are things at Jinx? And she was like, they came from Fort Collins, Colorado, and if you know anything about Fort Collins, it's a very liberal city, comparatively, to Waco, and, or Tulsa, and uh, she said, the, the trans conversation is 10 times more in our face here at Jinx than it was in Fort Collins. Uh, my, you know, I don't want to... Anyway, her kids are um, being asked almost daily, are you a lesbian? Are you trans? Are you gay? Why aren't you? You know, it's this culture of experimentation and, and so on and so forth. In one of the most culturally conservative places on planet Earth. So if that's the case in Tulsa, and increasingly it's the case here in Waco, this is just our new norm. And so we, I think, and I just applaud you for being here on a Monday night, um, seeking out more information, uh, because we have to be biblically grounded and equipped to turn around and be a voice of compassion and truth in this cultural moment, not reinforcing, again, pseudo-biblical norms of what it means to be male or female 
female, but deeply biblical uh, norms of what it means to be male and female. Does that make sense? All right. So that was the very long intro to uh, move us through a little bit more content here. Um, all right. This one slide summarizes our entire last week uh, talking about how did we get to where we are philosophically as a culture. And where we are today is what sociologists call a kind of the age of psychological emotivism. And that's just a big kind of uh, term that basically means we have separated out the mind from the body. That um, what I think and feel about my reality is more determinative than what anything outside of me says about reality. Be that God, my family, uh, my church, or even my body. So my body might be male, but that has no bearing on the actual reality of what it means to be human. My internal, psychological, emotional self might experience myself differently than my biology, and my psychology will override my biology every time. All right, so for the over 40s in the room, this has been very disorienting uh, because it's just pretty straightforward, isn't it, right? You're either male or you're female. You use one bathroom or the other, one locker room or the other. But the over 40s grew up in an age where um, external things were more determinative of reality than internal experiences. And that is hard to make that shift. So the over 40s still think of sexuality as an activity, as, as morality, or the under 40s think of sexuality as identity, not activity. Um, a fundamental part of who I am in terms of how I feel, not so much about morality. It's not about good or bad. And the closest analogy I can come up with that's not fully fair, uh, we don't have time to parse it out fully, but um, if you were to say to somebody today who's struggling with transgenderism, um, hey, I accept you, but I reject this decision you've made to transition or to express yourself as the opposite sex, it would be akin to, for me to say to a friend of mine who's black or Hispanic or Asian, hey, I accept you, but I reject your blackness. It would be an, it's an, it's an, an insensible statement, and we all get that intuitively, how insensible that is. But it's, it's become that nonsensical at the realm of sexuality as well. How can you say that you accept me and reject my sexual, sexual expression? They are one and the same, in the same way that my race is part of me. Um, and it's, uh, that is a hard leap to make for a lot of people, and especially the over 40s. But the philosophy, the operating system behind that is this idea of psychological emotivism, that my psychology determines uh, my reality. So a few other thoughts, um, if you just are interested, I don't know why that's cutting off there, I apologize, but uh, here's some leading feminist thinkers. We Last week we looked at a lot of the philosophers from the 1600s onward, but here's some additional feminist thinkers, if you just wanna uh, snapshot that, look that up later. Um, it's very interesting to read a lot of these women's works, and I'm highlighting them because we talked about other people like Rene Descartes and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and others last week. Um, but the things that are floating around in culture now, the quotes that you're reading online, the, or the thoughts that you're reading uh, on social media posts, they all have an origin. 
people aren't just sitting around on Twitter and coming up with these deep new philosophies about what it means to be human and what it means to live a good life. We are imbibing thoughts that very intelligent people have been thinking for hundreds of years. And these thoughts were relegated to kind of the ivory tower academic circles for a long time and now have been normalized in culture through a very fascinating process that we don't have time to get into today. But it's been very intentional. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This is how all um, social change happens, whether it's the, uh, the human rights movements of the 1960s with Martin Luther King or the gay activism of the 1980s with After the Ball and so on and so forth. But that's just a little taste of some of the, the key thinkers from the past hundred years. Um, here's a summary of a little bit of how we got to where we are today from around about maybe um, right before World War II. Here's some of the, um, the changes that have accelerated uh, the, um, the shift to psychological emotivism and this, this detachment from the body that we see when it comes to gender. So widespread contraceptive use, uh, really kind of emerging in the 20s with um, uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, who founded Planned Parenthood. Uh, Margaret Sanger, by the way, I don't say this um, very often of people, but a deeply evil woman. Uh, if you ever read her works, um, and I'm not, it's not a political statement on Planned Parenthood, but her, if you read her writings, she was a demented, twisted woman. Uh, so kind of the modern rise of Planned Parenthood and family planning has some really dark roots uh, in, in Margaret Sanger. I could read some of her quotes, and they are chilling. She hated women, uh, which is ironic. She hated herself. Uh, she pegged all of the problems of humanity on women having children and basically sought to uh, reverse the trend uh, and, and bring about uh, pretty much the demise of the human race. Uh, but conversation for another time as well. Okay, so uh, widespread contraceptive use is the first time that um, now contraceptives and certain sexual uh, practices have been either ancient, thousands of years old, but this is the first time that it's widespread in society and culture, and the first time that you don't have the possibility of long-term responsibility with sexual activity when widespread contraceptive use comes into the scene. So sexuality used to be thought of as procreative. Um, it's a procreational activity. Now it becomes a highly recreational activity without the attachment of long-term responsibility. This opens the door for sexuality to be understood uh, by different characteristics, secondary, secondary sexual characteristics, like pleasure, aesthetics, self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, uh, at, and so on. At the same time, philosophically, the mind is being decoupled from the body, and the mind, the psychology, is now authoritative. Uh, what it means to be human, according to Freud and others, is that we are sexual beings. If we're just animals, another branch of the tree of life, then what are animals but the sum of their impulses, and the strongest of those being the sexual impulse? So the, the thinking from the late 1800s, early 1900s, then coupled with some of the technological revolutions of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, gives rise to the sexual, sexual revolution of the late 60s, uh, this idea that we are just animals, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, animals in the animal kingdom, are there are no sexual inhibitions, and so we should just be who we are. Uh, we have, again, rapid technological advances that eliminate workplace distinctions and make it possible now to edit our secondary sex characteristics. Um, 
So our you know, hormone therapies and uh, double mastectomies and phalloplasty surgery and these different things that we can edit at a higher level. And actually, one of the conversations I had yesterday with my doctor friend was he was asking, it's not too inconceivable in the not too distant future that all five of those sexual characteristics that I listed up there that are fundamental about being male and female will be fully editable where somebody can fully edit their biology to become fully sexually female as, as a biological male or fully sexually male as a biological female. That's not too unthinkable in the not too distant future. That's an ethical concern uh, for the church to begin to think through how will we address that. Uh, already there are sexual transitions, um, surgical ones, we'll get into that here in just a moment, and the pastoral implications of that. Uh, gender roles are being defined, rap redefined rapidly, um, beginning is like a tsunami beginning uh, kind of around World War II, the, the um, women's voting rights movements of the early 1900s, which a lot of these things obviously began with really good intentions and good roots and led to good fruit. Of course we want suffrage rights for women, um, but coupled with all of these other things that are going on in culture and psychology and everything else, so what happens is gender emerges as a psychological reality that borrows from the biological, but mainly traffics in notions of social expectations and internal experiences. That's a really key sentence for diagnosing where we are today. Any questions there before we move on? I know I'm moving quickly through a lot of very dense thoughts. Okay. And don't be shy. Feel free to ask questions. All right, so here's some further definitions. Um, gender, and this is, this is unfair because if you look up things like gender on the internet, you're going to have a different definition for every uh, website and university and academic paper you click on. This is kind of my best effort at summarizing the, um, you know, if you just take kind of the, the mass sample and boil it down to its essential elements. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. Uh, some of the um, terms you'll hear are things like gender identity. So that would be the psychological aspect of being male and female. So um, some of the studies that you hear that, that try to, to um, present some science behind this would be like, uh, I have a male brain, that my brain is sexed male, but my body is sexed female. Or I have a female soul and a male, and a male body. And that's actually a very relevant Christian conversation. Is there a, um, uh, a, a, a fundamental sexuality to the immaterial parts of me that are universal and... Um, and timeless? Uh, I would argue no, but I think that's a, a relevant conversation to have. Uh, most of the, when you read these studies and you talk in clinical settings and other places, when you really drill down to if somebody's seeking to transition or dealing with gender dysphoria, which just is gender confusion, that how they experience themselves is incongruent with their biology or the norms around them, um, it is almost exclusively based on stereotypes. Uh, so I don't fit the mold. I, again, I'm a male who's more artistic and emotional. Or I'm a female who's more butch or, you know, just not being, trying to be crass. These are just words that, um, you know, that you'll hear in these different contexts. My sister-in-law is a, uh, she's lived a gay lifestyle and raised a child with her partner and uh, is a very 
socially masculine uh, woman and has been from birth. And so it was just very normal for her to kind of go this route because all of culture was telling her because you want to go into the Navy and you play, you know, contact sports and this, that, and the other. Well, you're clearly male. And I would say that is just bogus. It's just trash. Like the thinking is illogical. Uh, it's, it's shifting sands to moving target because cultural norms change uh, so rapidly. And, uh, and there's very little talk of what it means to be, again, fundamentally male and female. Gender roles complement the study of gender identity. That's more the external, social, cultural aspects of being male and female. Again, mostly based on stereotypes, which aren't bad in and of themselves, uh, unless, again, we, uh, we universalize them and say this is for all males or all females, as opposed to just descriptors of what fits most or many uh, in, in most cases, and so on. Um, lots of definitions here. This just might be take a pick and chew on this later. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Slow me down. So, is there a, a defined definition between gender and sex? What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that uh, for our purposes, language, is, language evolves based on our usage. So, I'm using sex to describe our biological reality and gender to describe what has emerged as this psychological and social reality. Now, in another context, I could use sex and gender interchangeably if I'm, if I'm attaching gender to biological realities. Uh, but for these purposes, I'm using the two words to distinguish between uh, these two phenomena, phenomena. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay. Any other questions at this point? Ruben, was that a hand? Okay. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, just here's some, you know, some definitions you might encounter. And again, these are... Uh, these definitions, and uh, I know we have clinicians in the room, and definition, definitions change at the academic level, it seems like weekly now, not monthly, yearly, or, uh, or uh, over the course of decades. So these are probably outmoded by the time I uh, created the slide. But transgender, an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience or present and express or live out their gender identities. Remember that psychological component of how they, how they perceive themselves differently from, from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. We'll look at a couple of diagrams here in a moment that'll express that'll make sense of that a little bit more uh, easily. Uh, there are lots of other terms. I mean, hundreds now, probably thousands, uh, and the meanings of them change uh, just about daily. We talk about non-binary, genderqueer, gender fluid, pangender, uh, et cetera. We're not gonna get into all those. Gender dysphoria, psychological term for the distress a lot of people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. And I would press on that if I was talking to somebody and say, talk to me about that. When you talk about your internal sense of self not being congruent with your biological sex, what I'll bet is going to come out is a long list of stereotypes that they do not feel congruent with. This internal sense of self that I like certain things or I don't fit into this group, it does not match my biology, therefore... I am transgender or at, at best just experiencing this distress, this dysphoria, and this incongruency with my understanding of myself psychologically, my understanding of myself biologically. Bill? It just so ironic to me about how 
Yeah, because there, there's nothing else to grasp, grab a hold of in the secular world. Uh, there's nothing fundamental about being male or female. And that's the deep irony of the LGBTQ acronym, is that the T is philosophically opposed to the L, the G, and the B. Because the L, the G, and the B require binary sex to make sense of, the, of that reality, where the transgender movement is seeking to, to um, dismantle binary sex. The only thing that tethers that together is their shared sense of victimhood. And I, let, me, let me just offer that as my thought. Uh, my thought is that they're, what tethers them together from reading, the, from reading the literature is their shared sense of victimhood. There is deep infighting amongst secular, the, the uh, transgender queer movement and the, the kind of historic, uh, historical uh, gay rights movement. There's deep fissures in, uh, in that movement. But they have still managed to, from a PR standpoint, band together because they're able to advance their agendas uh, politically and socially and otherwise. Uh, but it is a very tenuous relationship uh, because they're really undermining each other's position. All right. Um, so when we talk about people transitioning so I feel this dysphoria, I feel this disconnection, my psychology, my self, um, the way I experience myself is, is incongruent with my biological sex because of these norms and culture. Um, you have a lot of people, uh, historically these transitions were mainly at the level of social. Um, then with the advent of hormone, hormone therapy, it became hormonal. Now it can be surgical. But a social transition might just include, again, just kind of social presentation. The way I dress, the way I act, um, it is going to conform more to the gender I identify with, which again is not based on anything fundamental, but um, is going to traffic along the lanes of what is normative socially. But where this gets off for Christians is it waters down the biblical, dis uh, the, the biblical command to maintain distinction for the glory of God. So a man who wears high heels and tights today and dresses in drag, there's a motive there. I would suggest there is nothing fundamentally male or female. Let me say it this way. I don't believe there's anything fundamentally female about wearing high heels and tights and dresses. So we saw King Louis... Um, wore it and was expressing himself as, as deeply male in that culture. But in this culture, there is a motive of expression behind that, that I'm trying to blur the distinctions or cross the line and water down the biological distinctions that is God-given, and that is what is at stake. Does that make sense? Um, so the social transition might change my names. This is where pronouns uh, come into uh, the conversation. Uh, hormonal trans transition. This is where we start to do some cross-sex hormone therapies, uh, girls taking testosterone, boys taking estrogen. Most often, it's girls taking testosterone. Um, or you could have a surgical transition, uh, sex reassignment surgery, and there's all a list of acronyms. Um, and any number of those now that are available uh, from, you know, for girls, the first typically has something to do with the, with the breast, the double mastectomy, uh, to uh, appear more masculine, flat-chested, uh, but it can be, have everything to do with the genitals and, and so on and so forth. 
Um, there is a detransition movement happening. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, it is very prevalent in the UK. It's become kind of a national phenomenon where um, this supposed liberation of this dysphoria, I felt that I'm going to be liberated into my new sense of self. Actually, uh, there is uh, statistically, and Jim, you can correct me on the clinical realities as we get towards the end of this here, but the, according to what I have read, there is a brief reprieve uh, after a transition, but then the deeper brokenness that was there all along just resurfaces and manifests in a different way, and the underlying trauma or uh, depression, anxiety that was uh, present to motivate the transition is still there and actually often now compounds on itself especially with hormonal and surgical transitions. There are all kinds of medical side effects that the medical community is not always straightforward about because it is quickly becoming a $5 billion industry in the US. So there is a strong financial incentive uh, behind the um, surgical uh, movement uh, for transitioning. But there is a strong counter movement of detransitioning. And there's some beautiful documentaries out there uh, that chart uh, certain individuals' journeys of coming to Christ and navigating those complex waters. Uh, for some people, it's too risky to surgically transition back, too complicated, too um, uh, expensive. And so what does the reality of discipleship look like once I've made a transition and now I'm kind of stuck with that? What does my discipleship to Jesus look like? How does the church embrace that person and walk with them uh, through that very complicated um, uh, and painful process. Uh, you might hear the term cisgender. That refers to those whose gender is experienced congruently with their biological sex. The only reason I put it there is because I used to say I would, I would identify as cisgender. <laughs> but now uh, I would not say that I identify as cisgender because that lends credence to this separation between psychology and biology. Uh, that the two could be distinct from one another, which I don't uh, necessarily believe is congruent with reality. All right, um, here are a couple of little diagrams to, uh, that are being used in the school systems. Um, uh, I had a teacher at I did a presentation at a school recently. There was a teacher who just moved here from California. She's like, oh yeah, we use that in our uh, kindergarten curriculum. Um, so this is, uh, uh, these are put out by different uh, organizations and there is a very robust curriculum. The Seattle public school system has a very, uh, they post it online. You can watch the videos. Uh, their kindergarten through third grade curriculum uh, includes stuff like this. And then they have a gender declaration day in third grade, which is kind of like a field day. It's a big party and the kids after three, four years of education now get to declare their gender publicly and it's a big celebration uh, and so on. But you see the kind of the atomization of this idea of sexuality where within the biblical context, it is, it's just one thing. It is our biology that then gets worked out in culture. But here you have this idea of my gender identity can be any number of these things. My, my gender expression can be any other number of things. And you, you bring in the idea of attraction, sexual attraction, whether emotional or physical, and then my biological bi biological reality. Um, you have my sex assigned at birth, like the audacity of some doctor to say, based on these five biological distinctions, that I am male or female. Um, there's very uh, carefully crafted language uh, in this realm. And that, I, that whole, my sex assigned at birth is, is one of those, as, it was, as if it was imposed upon me, that I have been oppressed by 
this, you know, this power narrative. Anyway, um, well, I only, I only know California for sure does because I had a teacher that I was doing this presentation. She's like, we used that exact, um, here's another one, um, the genderbred, the genderbred man. Yes, in the public school system, yes. And you, you can find examples of these. They proliferate on the internet. And, uh, and again, you can go to Seattle Public Schools and find their gender curriculum, and they use all kinds of stuff like this. Videos, uh, picture books, and so on. They're taking these, all this complex psychological emotivism and everything, and they're just boiling it down to something that a kindergartner could grasp. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not my biology. My psychology is distinct from... Uh, my biology and how I feel about myself. And, and when you start really reading about this, again, all of this falls along lines of stereotypes uh, of what it means to be male and female. And not, it's not tethered to anything ontological. By ontological, I mean real. Like, uh, there's nothing concrete behind this movement. Uh, it is shifting sands at every level. All right, so if you start to have these conversations, and this gets super technical, so don't, don't worry about the technicalities. Um, inevitably, somebody who's gonna be a proponent of, kind of the transgender uh, thinking, philosophy movement, is gonna bring up intersex individuals. And even that, that word intersex is a bit of a misnomer because it implies that there's this gradient, that there's this kind of spectrum um, that you can be, in fact, I don't know if I have it, but there's a, another little graphic that's used and it has Barbie at one end and all these little paper cutouts that slowly morph, uh, like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and G.I. Joe at the other end. And it's all colorful. It's pink and Barbie and frilly over here and it slowly turns to like green and brown G.I. Joe over here, and a child gets to point, where are you on the spectrum from female to male? Are you a two? Are you an eight? Do you identify more with Barbie or identify more with G.I. Joe? It is nauseating because those are such ridiculous caricatures, <laughs> even just Barbie and G.I. Joe, of what it means to be female and male. And yet, in the education, anyway, it is just, it is, it's, it's insanity. Um, but inevitably, you're going to have somebody bring up intersex conditions. So these real conditions, and often these are not intersex people, not people born with genetic abnormalities that are bringing up intersex people. Um, actually, the people that I have read who have actual condi congenital conditions of sexual development um, are deeply hurt by the fact that the trans movement is using them to try to prove a point that there is kind of this gradient of male and female and you can fall somewhere on the spectrum, that it's not binary because these individuals exist that do have some ambiguity when it comes to their sexuality. So um, this used to be referred to in pop culture as hermaphroditism, uh, hermaphrodites, the current slang is intersex. Uh, now know this, that sex is re easily, readily recognizable at birth for almost 100% of people, 99.98% of people. Only 0.02% uh, of births have some congenital condition of sexual development, and that's probably a conservative number. The actual number is probably less than that. Um, uh, intersex does not mean neither male nor female. Uh, actually, these CCSDs, I think, is a more 
um, accurate description than intersex. Uh, there are 16 different conditions, or actually far more than that, but they kind of get bucketed into 16 categories that are classified as CCSDs. Um, they could include atypical features in a person's chromosomes, reproductive organs, and or anatomical sex. Here are some of the more common conditions. Uh, late onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, use that at your next uh, dinner uh, conversation. And... Um, and watch everybody's eyes roll back in their head. Uh, so um, this is the most common of all the CCSDs. 80% of intersex individuals have this specific condition. And it results in slight, a slightly enlarged clitoris in females, thinning scalp in males, often infertility in both. The key there is that there is zero ambiguity in the sex of the individual. And often people with loca don't even know they have it until they're infertile in marriage or some other, uh, an early onset thinning scalp, and they go in and they get genetically tested, and it's like, oh, you have this congenital uh, condition. And, um, and almost nine out of 10 of all people that are classified as intersex have this specific condition. Another one, Kleinfelter syndrome, can lead to small testicles and increase in tissue in the chest, infertility, but again, are, are universally, unambiguously male or female, yet this is still classified because it's a congenital issue as an intersex condition. Okay, you following this so far? I know we're getting in the weeds here. So bottom line, approximately 99% of the 0.02% of people who have an intersex condition are unambiguously male or female. So when we talk about truly people who are, who are ambiguously male or female, we are talking about a very, almost vanishingly small percentage of the population. That being said, we're still talking about real people with real pain and real challenges. So we do not diminish that, but we wanna be careful to be accurate as possible and, and combat some of the narrative in our culture that is kind of holding these conditions up as, see, see, it's not just so clear, it's not just male, female, there's this whole spectrum. That's well, not exactly the case. That being said, what about the 1% of the 1%? Uh, here are some of the less common conditions. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, the presence of a Y chromosome, but complete inability for the cell to respond to testosterone. So the presence of a Y chromosome means genetically male. Uh, but the cells are unable to respond to testosterone, so appear unambiguously female. Uh, full development of female reproductive organs, full development of breasts, but genetically male. You guys following? Um, so what do you do in that case? We're not here to tease all that out and answer those questions, but that condition exists. Uh, ovotestes is probably the most rare, only 500 known cases globally, uh, but, but possible to have fully XX and XY chromosomes and to be fully male and female in terms of anatomy, so fully developed internal female anatomy and fully developed external male anatomy. However, and this is fascinating, of all 500 cases, in every single one, um, the individual was only able to produce one gamete. And a gamete is either sperm or egg. So even though they had fully formed internal female reproductive organs or external male reproductive organs, the body would still only produce one gamete. And it just seems like the medical community just scratches their head, but it seems like God is still just hard, even in the midst of the fall, even in the midst of all this pain and these complexities, 
God is still hardwiring that there is a predisposition towards male or female. Now, in reality, how you would walk that out with somebody would be very complex. It would take a tremendous amount of sensitivity and would not just want to come in with some scientific, oh, because you only produce sperm, you're male, and now let's... That would take just a lot of navigating in the course of discipleship and life, and it would not be easy or clear. But I think that's an interesting thing to note, at, at least. So for what that's worth, <laughs> um, we're, we're rounding the corner here, and then we'll leave some time for Q&A. Um, Jesus seems to, to give a nod towards this reality these uh, congenital conditions of sexual development here in Matthew 19, a passage that we referred to earlier. They're talking about marriage, <clears throat> but the disciples say to him, if such is the case for a man with his wife, it's better to not marry. And he kind of twists, he like turns the conversation in a little bit of a different direction. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, and in that, in that setting, a eunuch was a male who was infertile. Typically, the, uh, the genitals had been removed um, so that they could serve in different capacities and culture. But he says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and seems to acknowledge these conditions of congenital sexual development. Uh, there are also eunuchs that are made eunuchs by men, others who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. He seems to refer to not a physical transition, but a choice like Paul to live a celibate single lifestyle, to serve God with an undivided devotion. And Jesus elevates all three of these individuals in these conditions. And, and um, the Bible stands alone of all ancient texts and religions uh, in just about every culture and every, anybody who was uh, ambiguously male or female or had some sexual condition was just immediately ostracized from community. Uh, the Old Testament holds up eunuchs. The New Testament, Jesus himself, um, elevates this, this, uh, this idea that, um, that not everyone can receive this saying of not marrying but only to those uh, to whom it has been uh, given. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. And that's a whole other set of teachings. But I just wanted to acknowledge that Jesus seems to be aware of this phenomenon, and he is not um, bashful about it, uh, and he uh, is not thrown uh, by the presence of people for whom sexuality might be ambiguous. All right. A um, couple last slides here. There's a phenomenon that our youth uh, of this nation and the globe are dealing with right now, the kind of the, right now, one of the working definitions of this movement or this phenomenon is the rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, historically, the trans community consisted mainly of males transitioning to females, either because they were uh, androphilic, meaning they were attracted to men, um, but uh, didn't want to be seen as homosexual. So they um, uh, made themselves female so that they could be heterosexual. Um, and anyway, uh, longer con conversation. Or they were gynophilic and they identified as, uh, they wanted to be with women but identified as a woman and would identify more as a lesbian. All that to say, now there's a movement and all the charts I've seen kind of show this J curve that they're the, the primary a subset of the population who is transitioning, who's dealing with gender dysphoria are, dysphoria, are teenage girls. 
no longer adult men. The, the primary population are teenage girls. And here are um, a number of the factors that the sociologists and psychologists who are studying this refer to. This is not exclusive, but these are just some of the factors that they attribute to this movement. Of, and it's not just teen girls. Of course, it's teen boys, it's adult men and women. But statistically, and I don't have the statistics in front of me, I apologize, but the, the movement among teen girls experiencing gender dysphoria uh, and often rapid onset. I've heard so many stories of this very nuclear family, godly family. Um, girl is a very, you know, stereotypically girly girl, and then all of a sudden comes home and announces that she's transitioning, and it's just taken parents by complete surprise. There was not kind of this lead up of these signs that pointed in this direction. Um, I think it's an oversimplification to, to say it's just social pressure and it's just kind of like a trend and a, uh, something cool. I think there's something under the surface here, and these are some of the factors. You have the worldview factor, just some of the philosophy behind this that we've been talking about and went in depth in last week in, the, in our class. You have the pornography factor, so just the widespread use of pornography and the objectification of women. And uh, a lot of girls see this and they say, I'm not going to be abused like that. I'm not going to be objectified or oppressed like that. And the easiest way to do that, in fact, one of the authors I read, Abigail Favalli, in uh, preparing this material, um, she describes herself as having a large chest and uh, she hated herself as a teenager because in her context she saw women who were curvy um, attract more attention, unwanted attention from men. And so she had planned to have a double mastectomy. Not that she was trying to identify as male, but she just hated her biology for the type of attention it attracted from men who had been trained uh, through pornography to objectify women sexually. You have the trauma factor. Um, there seems to be an above average correlation between mental health issues and this rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, and, and that could be big T trauma, small T trauma, uh, but there are often uh, deep uh, emotional wounds uh, associated, not always, but uh, there certainly seems to be a trend. Uh, and the internet factor. Right, um, especially youth today are used to being able to create this kind of an um, anonymized self that is fully customizable. And that is slowly changing the psychology of what it means to be human. I can self-create and be who, whomever I want and, and I can hide behind this veil of anonymity um, and, and so on. Uh, also, the prevalence of social media and the um, kind of the airbrushing of reality and the presentation of what it means to be male and female in these hyper-stylized, hyper-filtered um, uh, realities, and you get the best of everybody's fake world, but it presents this reality that I don't measure up to, and so there's deep self-hatred uh, uh, and this, uh, this desire to remake the self and to become somebody that I'm not. All right, um, last slide. You guys hanging with me? <laughs> Covered a lot of ground. Uh, I am not a clinician. I would defer to others who are. But here are some of the um, things that I have come across in my studies and conversations. Uh, within the clinical reality right now, no diagnostic process is allowed. So if a 16-year-old girl comes in, um, and, and it's different from state to state. Uh, different states have different age limits and parental, parental consent requirements. Uh, but uh, the clinician generally is forced to accept the patient's self-diagnosis. 
So if I come into a, a clinician, and I, if I come into a psychologist, a counselor, and I say, I want to amputate my arm, and that's an actual condition. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it might be on there. Uh, it's not. But if I want to amputate my arm, they are going to uh, diagnose me through a series of questions and a process to evaluate my mental state, and they can uh, steer me away from amputating my arm because that's not going to fix the, the deeper underlying issue that would be, um, what would be the word? That would not be not just professional, but that would not be ethical within that context. However, if a girl comes in who's 16 and wants to amputate both of her breasts, the clinician has to accept her self-diagnosis, can't probe into mental health issues and underlying causes. It's just the clinical reality in which we live. And again, uh, others can feel free to correct me on this. Um, uh, it's positively called affirmation in the clinical community to get your body to align with your mind. It is negatively called and can often be uh, punishable by a loss of license or even fines or possibly even um, some other uh, punitive legal uh, measures to try to get somebody's mind to align with their body. And I would, if I was just to sit down with the clinical community, I would say, could you please explain this? <laughs> How is this grounded in anything, uh, in any sort of sane, logical, rational uh, experience? Uh, however, um, this is the world that we live in, and because of a lot of the underlying, again, just cultural, social, and philosophical reasons that we have explored. <sighs> All right, so there's a summary. I'm not going to go through it uh, for the sake of time, but you can snap a pic of it if you'd like. But I wanted to leave some time for us to, for me to take a breath and for us to have a bit of a dialogue around this. So uh, we don't have to force questions, but we just, if, we, if there are no questions, um, we can just hang out for a few minutes uh, or, or call tonight, but yes. And, uh, and Shannon and Sean, why don't you guys come on up here and um, be available uh, to field some questions as well. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Jim, would you, uh, would you care to comment on that? Uh, very carefully <laughs> is probably the best answer. You know, I think the way, the best way I would apply it is, <clears throat> you know, uh, um, so I'm a psychologist, you know, and and uh, I work with college students. And but for the last few years, I've been doing more administrative work. But it reminds me a lot of the um, process we went through in working with students who had questions about uh, sort of being lesbian, gay, or bisexual. So one of the uh, um, there's a great uh, author and a guy named Mark Yarhouse who's written a lot about that. And he's written a lot about um, gender identity and dysphoria. But I think from a clinical perspective, approach has been to be, um, there's something we call informed consent in, in treatment. Um, and so it's a uh, kind of this understanding between a provider and a client or a patient about, hey, here's the service and here's what it's going to look like. And so one way that clinicians have been able to navigate a very difficult uh, professional landscape is what they call, um, it's kind of a more sophisticated type of informed consent. 
that, um, you know, I would do that sometimes if I was working with a, a student had questions about their uh, sexual identity, I would have a, an additional informed consent to say, hey, this is the type of work that we can do, but it, it's, it's a much more in-depth discussion about the type of work that we're gonna do together. And in other words, I'm more protecting myself as a clinician by having them be very, very aware of, of the type of process that we're gonna go through. And if they don't wanna do that, that's fine. You know, they can find plenty of other people who would do something different, but that's a little bit of the challenge. I would just say that, I mean, it is only, feels like only recently that this has sort of exploded in the way that we talked about. You know, it's just, uh, it's really, it really has seemed to change almost overnight, honestly. Yeah, question. Yeah, 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 no, that's, that's there's a lot there. I, uh, a couple of just brief responses. One, um, I failed to say this at the beginning. So this is a six-week course. This tonight was already pre-planned to talk about gender specifically. Um, next week, we're going to dive into more of some of the other sexual distortions, uh, pornography, uh, just lust in general, homosexuality. Um, week five, we're talking about singleness and dating and marriage. Week six, we're talking about discipleship, the church. So what's the hope in all this? What's the response of the church? Uh, how do we... Uh, walk with people? How do we deal with this ourselves? What? So tonight was very narrow and on specifically gender. So that's just a disclaimer. And if, um, I didn't pre-plan this, but uh, if you're interested in getting all of the content from this course and you just were unable to jump in and whatever, uh, all you have to do is email me and I'll add you to the email list and we're we're recording all these sessions. You have access to all the slides. So um, uh, my email is mick.murray at Antioch waco.com, uh, M-I-C-K dot Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y at AntiochWaco.com. So, because um, there's so much there, we, there's just so much we can't talk about in one session, so we kind of had to narrowly get into gender. But yes, uh, attraction and everything else. Uh, Ricky Shillette, uh, who, I can't remember the ministry that he leads up in Dallas. Um, Living Waters? It's not Living Waters. Is it Living Waters? Yeah. Yeah, Living Waters. So he, he used to be a regular here at Antioch in the discipleship schools, and he gave a very um, kind of standard talk from his ministry of working with specifically homosexual uh, individuals. And, um, and for years, he would come and give the same talk. And, and then one year he came in, and he's like, um, what is happening in our ministry is throwing all of my kind of prepackaged notions of what leads somebody into a homosexual lifestyle uh, you know, he's kind of like, it's just totally rewriting the script. It used to be, you know, this so common for people to come in and they were, they had a distant relationship with their father. There was some sexual trauma in their, in their youth. But now I'm having these people come in who had very whole and healthy families and, uh, and they were not exposed to pornography at nine years old. And, and so the complexity of the inputs that are, um, making the landscape very different from it was at maybe a specific point in time, like the 90s. And I think these are just four of probably 50 that we could talk about. Um, these are four of the more common ones that I've, that I've read about. Um, but I think it's a, yeah, the, the, we could talk about, you know, the, the role of the nuclear family, the, the role of uh, attraction, the role of COVID and the isolation. And, and that's where I'm just, I'm way out of my lane other than to say, 
it is very complex. But I think having a baseline biblical understanding and a, a compassionate discipleship approach, which is what we'll talk about in week six, um, is a starting point to begin to respond to what's going on in culture. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, my, I'd, I'd love to defer to you guys from a pastoral reality. Um, my short answer to that, and I'll borrow this from Preston Sprinkle, and by the, by the way, if you need a name of a trusted voice who's speaking into from, a, from both an academic and a lived pastoral reality, Preston Sprinkle, uh, and I believe he's with Pure Desire. He started Pure Desire Ministries. Don't quote me on that. But, but certainly Preston Sprinkle and certainly Pure Desire Ministries, whether or not he's connected with them, um, both trusted resources. But he, he says, if you meet one trans person, you've met one trans person. And if you meet one gay person, you have met one gay person. And what he means by that is there's a temptation to kind of um, uh, uh, systematize all trans people into, well, it's because of this. This came first and then this. And the reality is humans are very complex beings with a web of experiences um, internal wiring, uh, family of origin, cultural setting, education. I had a coach that said this or did this. I, and so um, there are some like bell curve middle norms, but really every individual, and this is where in week six we'll talk about accompaniment as a discipleship approach, where um, it's, we talk about speaking the truth in love with longevity. So I will walk alongside of you and be unapologetic, graciously about where I stand, but as willing as, as, as long as you are willing and we are willing to kind of fall forward in this, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so that I can, through a life-on-life process, get to know your unique story and not make presuppositions about where you're coming from and presume I know what the antidote is to your situation, but I can get in the boat with you and, and we can together stumble forward towards Jesus uh, where ultimately discipleship to Jesus is the goal, not even alignment with my biological sex, not even heterosexuality. The Holy Spirit is fantastic at leading and convicting at the right times. Um, so my role becomes pointing you to Jesus, pointing you to Jesus, weeping with you at, at the complexity and the pain and the confusion uh, and so on, that lived reality with people over time, um, which is hard, <laughs> which is why most people don't want to do it, uh, where it's easier to come up with a program and to kind of stick people into it uh, or to write a book and this is, you know, this is how you fix this. And that's, no, that's not what you were saying. I'm just saying the reality of, of walking with people. Um, I had a, a guy in the discipleship school who had lived a gay lifestyle for nine years in New York City as a prostitute to fund his drug addiction. Um, came from a pretty whole family, but just made a series of choices that landed him in a really bad place. A deeply spiritual guy, was practicing in the occult. Um, had a wild salvation experience. Uh, uh, where he's used to commute. Anyway, um, and moves to Waco uh, because he had a relative here, gets connected to the discipleship school. So I begin to mentor him. And uh, through the process of mentorship, discipleship, he, he's, one day he's like, hey, I, I, this is hard to say, but I have a crush on you. And uh, I don't know what that means now for our mentor relationship. And neither did I. Uh, and so... 
was like, okay, thank you for telling me. That took a lot of boldness. That took a lot of courage. Um, honestly, I, I don't know how to respond. Can I just absorb that, think about it, and let's circle back? He's like, sure. So I called Ricky Shillette uh, up in Dallas, and I was like, hey, Ricky, got this guy. He's interested in me. I'm trying to disciple him. Um, what, what do I do? And he was like, um, he's like, men have only ever wanted uh, one thing in his life, and nobody has stuck with him, likely, who didn't want something sexual from him. So he's like, my suggestion would be to be very clear with him that this will never become sexual, and I'm not going anywhere. Now, he's like, that's just my suggestion. Um, it's truth and love. Uh, you obviously have to nuance that within the context of your relational equity with him. But I came back to him and had a very awkward conversation of, um, hey, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, this will never turn into anything sexual, relational, beyond friendship in, uh, in, in our shared faith. Uh, but I'm also not going anywhere. And, uh, and we made some practical changes. We started meeting as a group of guys instead of one-on-one -on -one for his sake. Uh, and he um, just continued to develop as a disciple of Jesus, became a missionary with Antioch, is now married. Uh, not that that's the goal. That just happened to be his process. Um, and uh, and um, he would cite that among a thousand other experiences he had in the body of Christ as as a key part of his process. What would you guys add to that from a pastoral? I would just echo everything he said as far as every single person's journey is so unique. And I think that the danger, um, whether it's parents or in friendship or whatever, is to try to um, generalize and, and package it. And um, our experience has been that then um, <clears throat> a guy or a girl can feel like they're they're trying to be put into a box to fit into this thing nicely and neatly because people are saying it's because of this or it's because of this or it's because of this rather than taking the time to listen to what is going on, um, you know, for them. And there are just so many different nuances and experiences that contribute to someone's journey. So, yeah, I would just echo that. Time. We're at 7.30 is what we had said from the stage. So if you need to leave, feel free, but just do so. We'll, we'll keep going um, for a little bit longer. If you need to leave, just do so quietly and respectfully. I mean, yeah, or we can do a few more questions. But again, if you need to leave, go for it. But Shannon, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sean's going to jump in. He has some vertigo going on, and he's not feeling that great. But I will say... Yeah. <laughs> here's here's one thing that ooh, wow you were up here. Um, here's here's one thing that that has been a, a problem. And so growing up, even in my household, growing up, and my mom and dad had challenges, separated, got a divorce, really young age, um, in our my brothers and I's lives, and then talking through just different things and circumstances and issues. And so I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and a lot of times, um, even in my upbringing and in the church, and even for families that we have here in our church, in different church families uh, in Waco, talking about sexuality is a big no-no to kids in the elementary age uh, 
and in younger. So talking about this has always been this thing where it's like, uh, you just don't do it. And so growing up and having questions I remember in Sunday school um, and people, those questions were shut down. And then even going home and talking to, trying to ask my mom just different questions, it was a no-no. And so it's just depending upon how families decide to talk about or venture into these topics have been the I would say the thing that holds people back from being able to actually um, talk to, educate, or even share um, scripture about. And so what we've done in uh, youth ministry, we just let parents know, hey, we're about to hit this topic. You can do with it what you will of having your kid attend or not attend, but we end up um, going through and, and teaching this. Um, yeah, and just going through just different topics. But I think that by and large, I mean, it's something that um, depending upon school districts or um, communities that people don't touch on. Yeah, yeah, just one comment. I'm going to fully turn it over to them because I have to duck across the hall. Um, and so just let me just say thank you for being here. Sean Shannon committed to be here for a little bit longer. So anybody who wants to stay and can keep doing Q&A. Uh, loaded thoughts, really good thoughts, um, worthy of ongoing discussion. The word militant was used in this kind of like, this like fire that rises up, the church needs to, and, and I would, um, the one thought there, what's the role of the church in this? We could talk about the big C church, the institution of the church, or we could talk about the little C church, all of us being salt and light in community. And I, I would lean more towards in terms of praxis in terms of what's the role of the church in society towards the little C church of the role of the equipper to equip the saints for the work of ministry in politics or in the clinic or wherever we all find ourselves so that we can be the pillar in support of truth. Now, um, you know, what's the role of the church in politics? And I know, uh, who was I talking to? Debbie's really, uh, really politically active. And um, I would say my role is to stand behind Debbie um, so long as she is biblically centered and, and we can have, you know, we're gonna have a million different political opinions even in just this room. Um, but on some of these key issues, let's have a complex dialogue about it. And then how can I stand behind her? Uh, we will be, and I, I don't speak on behalf of the elders, but I know just from being in conversations, the capital C church is going to be hesitant to put our name behind something um, uh, now, we, are, we have clear stances on just about most of the key issues in society. But from a praxis standpoint, we believe we can be more effective by empowering the saints to do the work of ministry, equipping based on a clear biblical ethic um, to be potent in this cultural moment. Um, I am not intimidated by the secular wave that's hitting uh, America right now because it is a sinking ship. It doesn't work. It's not bearing good fruit. And so I don't feel the need to sling mud or to, to shoot arrows at it. I want to be, now I want to speak truth to it, but I would rather be a winsome alternative that as the ship is going down and parents have no, they don't know where to turn and kids are, the church is a compassionate but clear and potent alternative uh, in the midst of a very dark culture and age 
Uh, we're seeing that already in places like Seattle, our church there. Amazing testimonies coming out of their work in Seattle as the ship is sinking uh, at just about every level of society. And people are turning to Christ in, in mass right now uh, in places like Melbourne, Australia, New York City. Um, and they're prepared. They're prepared with biblical clarity to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and then to turn back around and at a grassroots level speak back into the school systems and speak back into the political realm and speak back into the medical community uh, and so on. My last thought there, parents, there is no such thing as a sex talk. It is sex talks as we go, Deuteronomy 6, as we lie down, as we rise up, because more than ever, they are getting it from a million different angles and inputs. So we are the ones who are squeamish about it, not them. Um, you have permission to stumble your way through and to be present in your kids' lives. If you're not coaching them, someone else is. And uh, it is not time to shy away because you don't know how to handle this and it's, an un it's uncomfortable. Now is the time to have the uncomfortable conversations. As much resistance as they give, they desire coaching, guidance through the chaos and the landmines of middle school and high school and so on. So now is the time. Give up a Netflix series and listen to a series on how to talk about this with your kids. Make an investment. Uh, you will not regret it, even though it's the harder path. Do not... Um, and I love Sean and Shannon, and I love their work, but do not uh, expect you know, a couple hours a week to fill the gap of 90 hours of input through social media and school and everything else that they're getting. You are gonna be the primary influencers for your kids. I have to duck out. I love you guys. Feel free to email me if you want more of this content. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, that no topic should be ever off limits. Um, just 100%, everything uh, that... Uh, a child would want to ask or say, please do um, hit those topics, those conversations, every question. And how you respond to a question, uh, facial expression, body language speaks volume. It is to be the best poker player if you've never played poker. <laughs> Just, it is, all right. Here we go. And, uh, and it helps so much. And so from my upbringing is the reason why I say that, because I had several questions that never got them answered directly from my, my parents and had to try and work through trial and error. And luckily, I had people then started pointing me to scripture that helped me. And so I'm big on, wow, we're gonna, we're gonna go to scripture and we're gonna talk about this and we're gonna lovingly walk through just any question that's coming up. Yeah, one last thing before we can take more questions. Definitely feel free, yeah, to go. I think we're specifically answering questions, I think, of parents next. But um, it's also, I know like for us, I can't speak for the younger grades. Crystal can weigh in on this possibly. But um, I know that we're, we're committed to linking, um, linking arms with parents. And we have parents with varying um, approaches in this. Um, some parents are uh, really um, delaying the, you know, delaying as long as possible before exposing their their kids to certain things, and their whether that's um, choosing to homeschool them or in private school situations or whatever. And so I know for us it's really complex because you can have a student of the same age who has 
a um, who has an understanding of things at a really broad level, and then you can have someone who is you know pretty insulated and is like I you know really really protected and like I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I know at least for middle school and high school years here at Antioch Waco, we provide the opportunity for those who are ready. So when we hit a topic, we'll say this is what we're getting ready to talk about, and we let our middle schoolers, we let our parents of middle schoolers send their kids on that specific night to our high school service, and we're just clear on what's going to be covered so that we can also honor the families that we partner with um, in those varying degrees of what of how they're choosing to navigate this. Um, so does that make sense? I don't know if that, I don't know if I explained that well, but <laughs> anyway, that's uh, another, um, yeah, small thing. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely the majority of the conversations that we're having are as uh, as students are trying to figure out how to navigate things with a friend, um, with a group of friends, and um, trying to be walk in compassion and in truth. I mean, that's probably the majority of the conversations that we have is what does that look like? How, you know, when do I say something? When do I not say something? We also have, um, you know, students who are having normal things come up for them that have been coming up, honestly, for all of the years we've been doing youth ministry, which is 30-ish years. And, um, but the the lens through which they're processing them, those things through has shifted. So, I mean, they're looking around and whether that is um, because of cultural, like what we talked about, just those cultural defining things, or um, wait a minute, I'm really good friends with this group and this group is wired this way. Therefore, what does that mean? You know, kind of thing. And um, our heart and approach has been, we just want to be so approachable that a student can be, just process anything that's coming up and just know that there's a safe place to be completely real and honest, to be massively loved, but to receive truth at the same time. And and then encouraging them in how to process whatever it is, you know, with their parent. Uh, for instance, um, you know, there was a girl who uh, she is taking this, she's in a class at school, biology class, and she's sitting by a girl. That girl starts talking to her, telling her her journey, telling her her story. And all of a sudden, and, and this girl is, um, you know, saying that she's gay. And then when she's telling her story, this girl's listening to the story and she's like, wait, half of her story is really similar to my story. And so now, like she's, instead of in the past, that would have just been a one-off thing. It's like, wait a minute, you know? And so it's like the pause and consider is a little different, you know, um, today than maybe even five or 10 or, or 15 years ago. Like, wait, what does that mean? And what does that mean about me? And, um, and so rather than that being a taboo thing to have a conversation about, one of the things we work with our <laughs> youth leaders about and everyone is, um, man, the the strategy of the enemy is for people to wonder about those things and not feel like they can process. And by bringing it into the light, then you're able to get to some of those root things and you're able to see um, things that would otherwise cause them to go all the way down this rabbit hole not actually happen. So anyway, yeah. So we, I mean, 
lots of different things that they're navigating, or even teachers. I mean, our own daughter is like, man, this teacher is saying this, and, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I, um, in a respectful and honoring way, share my conviction and belief with a teacher who is an authority who is saying something um, even offhanded in a different way. So um, just helping navigate those waters. Uh, I think that what we find more with youth right now um, as we navigate um, gender and gender roles, they're, they're really a lot of questions that we have and we talk about or gender uh, stereotypes yeah. that we work with students to wrestle through because when you actually open up scripture, there are not many like gender roles that we find in scripture that we then say and look at culturally. And so that's been one. Uh, I think that the big thing though, um, the hostility and learning how to um, disagree uh, with people and uh, knowing that that doesn't mean that I hate you, but how do I now, I, I'm seeing this and I don't agree and, uh, and then how do you actually then talk to people and have a conversation and still let people know that you love them unconditionally? And, uh, and so that's been, that's been huge. And so we've even had some students that have just um, had a really hard time when we, we talk about these things because they know people that identify as homosexual and they're being mistreated and they know that is not the heart of God and so because of that uh, they were just wrestling like what do I do now I want to make sure that this person is not mistreated um, but I don't also want to affirm that um, in, in what they're struggling with right now and there's just this whole knot that we see students in and so it's just we take students and we, we pray and we, we talk about it. And, um, and so I've spent time talking to a group of students as well as um, uh, individually and just walking them through scripture and praying with people. And we just wait on the Lord to hear what do we do next. Um, and I can honestly say that we've seen people be able to move forward and actually get past the, the different hard situations that they've been in that the Lord just reveals and have watched people walk through it um, and be successful in that. Yeah, I mean, let's hit that at the end. That's primarily just disrespect. I mean, it doesn't have to do with this topic at all. Um, so we can definitely hit that, but um, that would be more just like, um, uh, yeah, completely different than this. But yeah, we can definitely talk about that. Um, Want to answer more questions? One of the things that I, I basically just asked a few teenagers today, what would you want parents to know? Like if you, if, if, you know, you were, uh, I asked college students and teenagers and three things that came up that I thought were really helpful is number one, not to make assumptive statements or ask assumptive questions. I think that sometimes, even in a well-meaning way, we can um, say, well, I'm so proud of you for not, not struggling with this, or I'm so proud of you for, for feeling like this, or, or standing for this, or whatever. And, um, and then, or I know you're not dealing with this, but what if your friend was? And I think that the overall feedback is 
don't assume that we're, you know, not, that we're never having a thought or never having a struggle. Maybe ask more open-ended questions that give us the opportunity that if there is something, we feel like you're not going to fall over in shock because you're not expecting it from us, um, which I thought was really good feedback and something that we talk about a lot. And then um, not to invalidate, like not to be so quick to say, um, if someone is struggling with something and wants to talk to you, not to be so quick to say, well, that's not who you are. That's not who God, like in our effort to have declarative truth statements, sometimes it can feel like we're invalidating someone's like struggle or feelings or journey in like with the best interest. Um, and so they're just like, man, taking time just to sit and listen and hear what is going on. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll talk to girls who um, they had like a, a moment with a friend that got, you know, codependent and weird and they're trying to like explain it to their mom. And, and that happens like so frequently and so commonly and so often. And the mom is just so quick to respond and react with, well, that doesn't mean, you know, and it's like, just take time to stop and listen and understand what they were trying to say. And then the third thing is how we talk, how you talk and we say we, um, how we talk about things in passing when we're not having a conversation with our kids about something specific, it's like they pick up on our our heart and our attitude and things like that, which then paves the way for how approachable they feel like we are and what our heart might be. So anyway, I just thought those were helpful things that they said. But yeah, any other questions? Um, honestly, the Preston Sprinkle stuff that he talked about specifically embodied, uh, the, um, I mean, I listened to it on audiobook, but the book embodied is, uh, really, uh, helpful. I, I'm having a hard time endorsing anything right now because everything gets so outdated. So honestly, there were some books that I'm like, oh, that would be good. And now some of those things are just so, um, they're 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 hard because the the terminology has just changed um, so much. Like he has a book from 2015 specifically for parents that if you read it, understanding that a lot of things have changed since then, but the heart of it is still great, is awesome. It's great content. Um, but I think sometimes people are really literal. So a parent will read a book and then try to use the language from the book to have a conversation with their kid. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, kind of thing. And we don't have to be experts in order to have the conversations. Obviously, that's the, a lie that the enemy wants us to believe. It's it's not. We're on a journey of of learning with our kids. Not we have to become the expert to have the conversation with them. But um, <clears throat> some of the older books that are almost you know 10, 20 years old, you do just have to understand when you read them. Like extrapolate the the heart and the things that are. Um, that transcend time, and then know that there have been some changes. Um, our daughter is a teacher in Hawaii, and um, she is not allowed um, to, in a public school, she is not allowed to say she, him, 
a boy or girl. I mean, like she had, it's like this whole thing. And I'm learning a ton. It's heartbreaking. She views herself daily as a missionary um, in, I mean, we could tell you story after story. I mean, papers that they're writing, things that they're exposed to. And she um, has been so helpful because she was just like, so many of these parents assume that they have to engage at a level that she's like that these kids just want to be they want to be heard and listened to and you know talk and they want to talk a lot and um, so it's been really helpful in talking to her because she gets to read these fifth and sixth grade unfiltered stories from their perspective of what they're wishing would happen you know at home and she's like I wish I could like take these type them out send them out and um, but obviously a lot of unbelieving families so oh and Jackie Hill Perry um, our students uh, we just played a clip from her two weeks ago um, yeah not on this topic that's true yeah yeah but she is um, a great uh, I think it's Gay Girl, Good God, is that the name of the book? Um, but she is just um, a great voice of compassion and truth and has her own testimony that's really powerful. So um, it's another good resource. So it's one of our things to identify um, kind of current resources that we can like strongly point to, but yeah. 